0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The Climate Farmers community is the place to be if you're working towards regenerating your farmland and business and want to learn from other farmers who are on a similar journey. Now, Europe is a very diverse continent with significant differences in biomes, landscapes, climates, cultures, languages, and contexts. So rather than looking further abroad for solutions, connect with others who found solutions to the challenges that are unique to us here. We have a central community chat on WhatsApp where you can ask questions, share your own observations, and simply chat with others who don't think you're crazy. We also organize regular skill exchange calls where experienced farmers share their knowledge and answer listener questions. Increasingly, we're even bringing the community offline by organizing gatherings at farms all around Europe. So if you're actively farming anywhere in Europe, you can join for free today through the website at climatefarmers.org under the For Farmers tab and click on Join the Community. And there's also a direct link through the show notes for this episode. I look forward to seeing you there. Hey there everybody and welcome back. So I've been observing an interesting trend in the Regen Ag space. The concept and awareness of Regen Ag has been growing exponentially with many people exploring ways to start their own farms and to participate in and support those who are already involved. But at the same time, the current economic situation and the complexity of regulations, paired with skilled worker shortages and other challenges, are leading people to burn out or quit altogether. Now, it's no joke how complex and difficult it can be to run a lean and a profitable farm in modern times. Luckily, though, there are some successful and experienced farmers out there who are helping to train and inform the new generation in order to support them in getting established. Now, one voice in particular who I've admired since the release of his first book, The Lean Farm, is Ben Hartman. Now, though they both have a lot of experience from running their previous large-scale operation, Ben, along with his wife, Rachel, started their new venture, Clay Bottom Farm, which is an urban farm set on the north edge of Goshen, Indiana, back in 2006. One of their key features is that all of their food is sold within 1.5 miles of the farm. Now, Ben is known for bringing the lean methodology pioneered in factory manufacturing to the management and processes of small farms. He now has a new book titled The Lean Micro Farm, How to Get Small, Embrace Local, Live Better and Work Less. In this interview, Ben shares his story in the initial passion for farming and the journey to creating a simplified and efficient operation that allowed him to enjoy a life with his family and still have hobbies while running a profitable farm. We discuss the criteria that he uses from the lean system to design workflows, focus energy on the tasks of highest return, and eliminate unnecessary work. We also go into the practical details of his third of an acre operation, such as the tools that he uses, his method for bed flipping in the market garden, the marketing and sales system that he has, and the infrastructure that makes it all flow smoothly. Now this episode is packed with advice for growers who are looking to get small by reducing complexity and waste without compromising profitability or losing their customer base. So now let's check in with Ben Hartman. Hey Ben, thanks so much for taking time today. It's great to connect with you. How are you doing?
1: Well, Oliver, thanks. It's wonderful to be here. I'm doing well today, and you? you.
0: I'm doing real well. We are having quite a warm autumn at the moment. It's mid-October, but we're in the mid 80s at the moment. And it's been it's been a crazy season. How has your previous season been?
1: We had a good season, and, uh, uh, and like all farmers, we're trying to deal with uh, weather that gets more unpredictable every season.
0: Sure, sure. You guys got a lot of rain this year, didn't you?
1: Uh, we had too much in the mid season, not enough in the be- in the be- in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, it's all and... a distribution thing, huh?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Well, look. You have a really cool story of having started on a larger farm and then moved into the city and reduced your acreage, but still had the challenges of needing to make a meaningful living and balance having kids within that lifestyle. Maybe we should start by talking about what that transition looked like and some of the priorities that you put in place in order to downsize in a way that fit your lifestyle.
1: Uh Uh-huh. So uh, to back... To back up uh, several years, um, when I was 16 uh, years old, I started our first CSA, and I basically used the home garden that my parents had and added a row of potatoes or a row of peas or a row of beans or whatever to fill 12 CSA boxes that I drove into town to customers. And long story short, I haven't quit. I've still uh, been growing every season since. And when my wife, Rachel and I married after college, uh, we started searching uh, for land and it was difficult to uh, find with the little amount of capital that we had, but we started in town and we rented several plots uh, in town. We, be- we began as a multi-plot urban farm and we did that for three or four growing seasons till we saved up enough money to buy a five acre farm which was outside of town, about 10 miles. So still fairly close. Um, and we started to grow our business. And uh, I had, I uh, quit uh, working uh, an, uh, an off farm job at that time. I was in construction and worked in the school system, some too, some too. And just devoted ourselves uh, full, full on to farming. And I grew up on a corn and soybean farm here in Indiana. And the way you stay in business as a corn soybean farmer is that you get bigger every year. You grow on more land, you produce more corn or soybeans, you build more grain bins. It's just more, more, more every season. You start with 500 acres, which is the size of our family's farm. Then eventually you'll have to get up to a thousand acres, then 2000 acres. And, and nowadays you almost have to be more than 2000 acres to make things pencil out on in that scale of business. And so that's the mindset I went into vegetable farming with. I thought, okay, we'll start on five acres, get to 10 acres, 50 acres, 100 acres, and eventually I'll be a real vegetable farmer. And so with that mindset, we were growing as quickly as we could. I we were building one greenhouse every season and uh, our third greenhouse, we had just finished when a gale force wind uh, blew through the farm, picked it up and threw it on top of the barn roof. And it was demoralizing moment. <laughs> and we thought, okay, this might be a sign that it's time to pivot away uh, from farming back into quote-unquote real jo- jobs because we were just barely making it financially. And that was quite a blow. So within that same week, ho- however, a couple of things happened. Our Amish neighbors came down uh, that same evening actually and helped us take that greenhouse off the roof. Uh, a CSA customer of ours, sent us a check uh, to replace the cost of the greenhouse. And she included a little note with the check that said, I want you to keep going. I hope this helps. Mm. Uh, And one of the chefs, the first chef that we sold tomatoes to, he sent an email to me and said, if you can collect the funds to build another greenhouse, uh, I'll come out and help you put it up. And so even as we were, even as we were considering whether this is the right career choice for us, our community was coming around us saying, no, keep going. <laughs> we want you to keep doing this. Uh, it, around that time, a CSA customer of, of ours also sent a note to me saying he had been using Steve Brennerman was his name saying he'd been using uh, the lean uh, production system in his aluminum trailer fa- factory uh, for the past several years. And it's just the bee's knees. It's really turned his business around and he offered to come out teach lean concepts and principles to us and tried and offered uh, that they, and suggested they might give us a boost on our small farm. And so that was a turning point for us in terms of our thinking. And we began to realize that there might be an Avenue forward for us that didn't involve getting bigger and doing more every season, uh, smaller and sm- smarter might be another option. And so beginning that season, we have basically contracted the size of our farm in terms of the number of acres in production in terms of the amount of time we put in, in terms of our inputs and yet we've grown our business every season when kids came uh, a couple years later kids came al- along we now have a 7 year old and a 9 year 9 year old uh, our first son arlo was uh, born in 2014 and in 2016 uh, our second son was born and at that point we wondered if we couldn't take this whole lean thing to a whole nother level. And uh, my wife, Rachel, she gets the credit for really pushing us to look for another piece of property uh, that would, would allow us to take it to another level. And so after a year of searching, we found this parcel of land within inside city limits of Goshen, Indiana, a small college town of about 40,000. And we made a huge pivot. Uh, where now all of our food sells inside of Goshen, so within a mile and a half of our farm. We work fewer than 35 hours a week. We winnowed down to seven tools that we use in the field. And uh, all of our inputs, uh, which is, say, our fertilizer, uh, comes from within a mile and a half, too, in the form of leaves from the city of Goshen. And we use spent grains from a local brewing company here, too. And it's been... Rat, it's it's been a wild ride to make that all happen, but it's been totally worth it. And we're certainly not perfect. There's a lot of things we would change, um, but that's what the Lean uh, Microfarm book tells is the, the story of our pivot and the three principles uh, that we used to make it happen that we could go from one acre uh, to a third of an acre without taking a pay cut.
0: That is a remarkable story. And like you said, it really bucks the trend as to how most farming operations have been pushed to go in recent history, which is constant expansion. And looking at the aspects of a business that are actually working, ruthlessly cutting waste and inefficiency, you've made a complete transformation from that trajectory into one that fits your lifestyle better. And I think that's a perfect st- segue into those three principles that you were mentioning that have helped you make this transition.
1: Uh, sure. Well, the first is to define enough. So we live in a culture of not in, of never enough and not just in business, but in, in our personal lives too. We never, never never can have enough technology or things in our life um, and can never be doing enough projects. There's always something grabbing for our time and attention and always uh, increasingly trying to shorten our attention spans. We're all going to be have the attention spans the length of a gnat pretty soon here, <laughs> and the challenge is to buck that trend so we can lengthen our attention span and increase our focus, and um, and better define what is enough. Well, so we sat down with a piece of paper and we said, okay, how much is enough land? How much is enough income? How much? Uh, how many hours is enough? And tried to arrive at some tight definitions of what would work well for our family, and then make the business fit inside that mold instead of the other way around yeah. instead of working for the farm we want the farm to work for us so we actively said limits uh, one of these was like i said to sell food within a mile and a half to work 35 hours a week or less and to grow our food on fifteen thousand square feet or about a third of an acre uh, or less so that we have tight focus then the challenge is to see these as le- as levers not limits okay so we want to leverage these constraints to do more, to do better focused work, instead of seeing these uh, these boundaries as limitations on us. And so, in effect, what we've been able to do, I'll just skip to the to the secret sauce here, is mo- on most vegetable farms, the two highest costs after your labor costs are transportation and refrigeration. Okay. And what we've been able to do is virtually eliminate both of those costs. And so we harvest our food. Yesterday, we did a harvest for three restaurants here in town. We began harvest at eight o'clock in the morning, finished by noon, had the food delivered by early afternoon. And so we do not need to use refrigeration with that short of a timeline where we're harvesting and delivering within an hour or two. And uh, and then to deliver the food took us a mere 20 or so minutes. Uh, compared to in the US anyhow, food travels 500 miles or more on average between the farm and uh, the person who consumes the food. Yeah. So by cutting costs, we're able to be very cost competitive and um, can, can reach a high margin with all of the crops that we produce. The second uh, principle we use is to essentialize and simplify. Okay, let me explain what that means. To essentialize our farm, we used uh, the Pareto principle. If you're not familiar with this, it essentially is, it's uh, it's also colloquially called the 80-20, 80-20 rule. Essentially what that means is that 20% of your time, energy and effort is in in, uh, in capital financial inputs are probably producing 80% of your revenues, 80% of the results. And this is certainly true. And, and, and the opposite is true too. 80% of your time, efforts, energy and capital are responsible for the remaining 20%. This is true in most and in, in a lot of small businesses and it's certainly true on most of the small farms that I've been on. And so the challenge for us was to say well where is the 20% here? In Pareto uh, Alfredo Pareto would have called this the what are the vital um, the vital products in your business and who are your vital customers. And so with customers it's pro- it was the case for us anyhow that 20% of our customers were providing about 80% of the revenue. So we said, what would happen if we focused on those 20%? And in our case, it's about five accounts. What if we really sat down and talked to those chefs, listened to them and produced exactly what they wanted, when they wanted it and in, 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 in the right amount? And the same with crops. What if we only focused we, in, on five, we have five focused crops instead of growing 40 or 60 you know, variety of crops. We still do grow a wider variety for a small CSA that we were on, but we have five crops that we've really honed in on, got really good at growing, and have high margins in those five crops. So instead of trying to do everything, to grow everything, try to sell to every uh, account that we can, uh, we focus on what we call the vital core. 20% vital customers with 20% uh, vital products. Our vital products are those that we can uh, produce high volume, uh, low cost production that sell for high prices or fair market prices that pay us living wages. And the vital customers are those that order in high volume. They're closest to our farm and they pay fair prices. Okay. So combining those two has been very powerful formula to focus our farming efforts. And it's what allowed us to decrease our work and increase our revenue at the same time. So the vital crops should produce for us $3 a square foot or more. We should be able to produce it $3 a square foot on our farm or more. And um, this season, we're averaging over $5 a square foot, which is an incredible one acre return. Uh, and then uh, a wholesale account should be those that order at least $200 a week or more, so higher volume accounts. So our five focus crops are tomatoes, uh, solid greens, spinach, kale, and cilantro. So that's essentially how we simplified our farm and or how we essentialized our farm. And the answer is going to be different, obviously, on every farm, because your mix of customers and crops will be different. And then next, we simplified. So it, it, number two is essentialize and simplify. To simplify our farm was to say two things: how can we farm with the fewest number of tools poss- possible, and how can we farm with the simplest possible process uh, for each crop? And so, like I said earlier, we honed, we winnowed down to seven uh, field tools. And with our work, the primary way that we simplified our field work was to was to count our steps, and we realized with uh, tillage practice practices, there are a lot of field passes to go over a field to get it ready for the next crop to go in. And instead, we use we in our new farm, we've exclusively used what we call the deep mulch system, and this is where we take those leaves that we collect from this, this city. Uh, We turn them using a a low input method, turn them just two or three times. And then apply four inches of compost on the surface. This is initially to work. We we work the ground with the tiller once and then spread four inches of this local compost directly on the surface and did not work it in. Just leave it on the surface. So what happens is we have a blanket, it smothers the weeds, we have a slow drip of minerals and nutrients uh, that feed our crops for years to come. And uh, we have wonderful tilth. Uh, the ground is just always soft and nice to work in in that top four inches. And uh, then once every season, I, I like to do it in the winter when the ground's frozen, is we'll we'll skim it, we'll top dress with one inch of uh, compost, additional compost. And that's it. And so we don't take uh, soil tests. We don't, uh, add m- minerals. It's just a very simple localized system that we're using. And it's been working out nicely in our case in the book details there, there are a lot of, there are nuances to it, The book details some of those to transition crops. This is important to simplify crop transition because on our third acre farm, we'll typically, uh, plant three times in a season, uh, in one bed. So have a spring, summer and a fall crop and the greenhouse will do 4 as we add that winter crop. So there's a lot of what we call bed flipping. <laughs> well, we'll go from mizuna to tomatoes to spinach for example. When that mizuna is, is finished, we simply smother it with a tarp. Okay? This would be uh silage tarps, they're UV resist resist resistant and we're just going to cover the crop and deprive oxygen to the green, to the vegetation that's above the surface. So it's similar in a sense to bakashi fermenting, uh, Japanese fermenting, uh, com- I'm sorry, bakashi composting, Japanese composting method that involves oxygen deprivation. And what we're doing is essentially making a version of kimchi out in the field. And we're fermenting those crops, really cooking them. And within a week, they melt down to nothing. Uh, in the midsummer, summer it'll take longer, could be three or four weeks in the spring or fall, and the temperature's not quite as hot. But within a matter of weeks, uh, we'll burn down those crops. We can remove the tarp, do a bit of raking if we need to. There's some residue left on the surface uh, often, and then we'll plant again. And that's it. There's there's Typically, we don't get out the broad fork. We don't loosen the soil um, uh, in the field. In the greenhouse, we do loosen a bit after tomatoes because we've been walking along beside the tomatoes to harvest. Uh, but it's a very minimalist uh, two-step system. You just cover with the tarp and then uncover the tarp and rake. Um, that has uh, removed a lot of effort and wasted time on our farm. And it's a way of composting in place or composting in seed too. And because previously what we would do is take an old crop, cut it, take it to the compost, turn it five or six times in the compost, and then bring it back to the field and spread it. Oh, that's a lot of work uh, when nature can do that work for us and in a way that increases biological life right there in the soil. And uh, it's, it's a minimalist way to get our farming done.
0: This is amazing. You went through a lot right there and I know that there's more techniques and Uh, tips that are outlined in this book but I want to go back to that first part when you're talking about essentialism and I'd love to get an insight into what the conversation with your partner looked like when you were deciding how to reconfigure your business to fit into this smaller land base and reduce down not only in complexity but also in let's say clients I know from personal experience of farming when I was back in Guatemala even losing some of the small clients can feel really risky if you were dependent on them for a certain amount of time like what did that conversation look like what were some of the things that were discussed that brought you to these parameters that you ended up putting on yourself
1: so sure that um to be very tra- to be transparent about my personality type <laughs> i'm the one who one wants to always push the boundaries and and saying hey let's do more let's grow more let's grow let's find another customer and let's just keep going And Rachel has a cooler head sometimes than me and is the one saying, well, does that really make sense? (laughs) Uh, Will this customer, more of a skeptics approach, which is very useful, counterbalance for me and questioning, does this really fit our system? Does this really fit what our family needs? Um, Will this this account really pay off? And really, will this increase our hourly age on the farm? Because that's really the only metric and lean that counts is will this change increase or decrease the hourly wage that you earn? And so um, that's one aspect. And then a second is I'm the worrywart in the family too. And so I was the one saying, if we lose XYZ account, or if we stop growing XYZ you know, crop, we're not going to make it. The numbers aren't going to add up. We're going to uh, lose revenue and lose customers. And the reality is that just never happened. I was wrong at almost every single time. (laughs) And um, part of the key is that we're just able to to provide better focus and to have just a small number of customers. And I do sit down with them every winter, go over what we do on the farm, go over the menus, menu changes, um, or if it's a grocery store account, go over the revenues last year for each item that we sold to them and really get precise on what they want, what size of tomato they want, what color, uh, what level of ripeness do they, they want, and when do they want it delivered is increasingly important on, in today's food scape. And so for example, with a brewing company that we sell to, uh, they don't want food there before noon. The chef, he often doesn't wake up till late morning or early afternoon because he's yeah. been up till, you know, uh, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, And so that's important. And if we show up at nine o'clock, that's of no use to them. However, it, they have a rush of customers come in starting at about five o'clock. So ideally they get their food between say two o'clock and four o'clock in the afternoon. So that's a tight window of time because we, we are so close and localized, we can do it. And we can deliver two, three times a week in that little window of time that adds immense v- value to that customer. Mm-hmm. And for some crops, we charge quite a bit, up to twice as much more as our competition, but it's worth it because we can we have these other value attributes that are attached to our product that, um, that we've uh, been able to retain those customers.
0: And that only comes from building a deeper relationship with those customers that you've identified really add value and security to what you're offering in your niche business, right?
1: Well, that's true. And so Kaizen would be the lean term for continuous improvement. And it's often thought that that only applies to the shop floor. How do you improve your field process in our case? However, Kaizen really, um, I think is equally or more effective when you apply it to the customer. And what does it mean to deepen that relationship every season? What does it mean to more precisely understand the customer every season? In our case, we uh, We almost think of it as co-creating co-cre- each other's products. Mm-hmm. I help with some menu ideas based on what foods might be seasonally available, and they certainly help co-create our farm because we now don't crack open the seed catalog until I've had that conversation with the chef and understand what seeds they want, what, what crops they want, and what season they want it.
0: Now, one thing that I can see about being so focused is that might leave you somewhat vulnerable to fluctuations in your clientele or in the market. I mean, let's think back to 2020 when all of those restaurants were closed down temporarily. How did that impact the business planning that you had done before then?
1: I was out in the greenhouse on March 15 when Governor Holcomb came on the radio, Governor of Indiana, and he made the announcement that he was closing all the restaurants in Indiana. And I was planting 600 tomato plants for restaurants. <laughs> uh, we had lined up these orders with chefs. And Rachel heard that announcement and she was in the house and she ran out to the greenhouse. And she waved her arms at me and she said, Ben, you have to stop planting. Uh, we just lost all of our accounts this year. <laughs> and um, you know me, I can't stop planting tomatoes. But <laughs> I, I finished the row. I was so and then we met with our farm. We have two part-time workers here on the farm. We met together as a team. We said, "Okay, what are we going to do here?" And we decided to restart uh, CSA. We had stopped doing CSA for several years by that point. We decided to, uh, to to talk to talk to the neighborhood to really start with the customer and work backwards from them. And so we talked to s- several c- potential CSA customers. Heard that they wanted a no contact. You know, they would appreciate no contact CSA model where we would potentially deliver food to their porches. And that's what we did. And, and we continue with that, uh, that model, that program. And it's a, what they wanted too is a no waste, no plastic mm-hmm. uh, model. And we were all behind that, of course. So what we do is we'll harvest our carrots or turnips or radishes in the Rubbermaid totes, uh, hold about 14 ga- gallons and, uh, fill those totes, put them in the delivery vehicle, uh, which is a, a Toyota, Toyota Sienna, <laughs> and drive around to the porch of our customers and simply unload turnips or carrots or whatever into coolers that we've asked our customers to set on their porch. Hmm. So we don't even ban the kale or the, we don't even ban the the, the crops. We just put them in the cooler uh, loose. And so for us on our end, we don't have to spend the time banning or packaging crops. It saves a lot of time. And, and we were spending three or $4,000 a year on packaging supply. So it's nice to cut out that cost too. Yeah, that's and it's really no more, it's not that much more inconvenient for the customer to. Um, with solid greens, it was a little bit of a trick. Sure. What we did there was we asked customers to put out a Tupperware of whatever size container they might, wanna, they might want, and then we fill that container. So it's a choose your own amount uh, uh, policy with solid.
0: Oh that's really innovative. I hadn't heard of that one before. And again, that just comes from having a good dialogue. And one of the principles that are outlined in this book, which is integration within your community, is this open conversation something that you have a system in place to constantly receive feedback and and discussions from or has this been, you know, as people show up and give you advice or give you feedback you've been integrating it?
1: So yeah, so that 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 brings us to the third principle that was really instrumental in making this happen to go from one acre to a third of an acre um, without taking a pay cut and that was to to localize our farm to really hyper localize our farm and we used uh, what we found helpful was the Swadeshi concept and this is a gandhi uh, gandhi invented the word he's the first person to use the word Swadeshi, and it's a combination of two sanskrit words that means self and country and he defined it as restricting yourself to the use and service of our immediate surroundings to the exclusion of the more remote. So Gandhi obviously had an interest in independence uh, uh, from British rule and localizing uh, the Indian economy to so that villages were not dependent, uh, for example, on cloth. And this is a very important symbolically for Gandhi, to, that the Indians should be weaving their own cloth. And as he spoke, he often had a... Uh, a, a, char, a char a a spinning wheel that he wove cloth from as he spoke uh, at these events and the cloth is important symbolically too because the idea is that you want to weave your farm in and out of the community and the two should be really interdependent on one another uh, when i was growing up the idea was that i thought i would be it, it, it might be possible to be a completely independent farm to go out in the country, just do things on your own, build your own buildings and grow your own food. Um, and, but really underappreciated the fact that we're all truly interdependent on one another and tree, truly can strengthen, farms are strengthened and communities are strengthened when those ties are tighter together or woven together. Now, the thing about uh, Swadeshi is, uh, and it's a little bit, a, a bit underappreciated sometimes about Gandhi is that he was a true entrepreneur too and innovator. And he invented a two-wheel charka a uh, spinning wheel, that he used as he spoke. And he challenged villages to be more efficient in their production, uh, in their weaving, uh, than their British counterparts. Okay, so he was certainly into the idea of traditional methods and wanting villages to be um, self-sufficient, but innovation was an important part of that too. And so. When we think about localizing, we think about deepening those relationships every year, but also innovating with our community. Uh, How can we provide more and healthier food uh, with less effort, less waste, fewer resources in our community? And the example I just gave of that CSA, uh, no waste CSA delivery scheme would be one, one prime example of how we've done that.
0: Talk to me about your own method of innovation within your farm and your relationship with your clients. I mean, I can't imagine it was one day to the next that you started this delivery and no plastic system or that you whittled down your vegetable production to just doing the no dig, deep mulch and Mm. composting with leaves system. I, I would imagine there were iterations that got you here. What are you looking for? How do you plan these out? What tells you that you're going in the right
1: direction? So there, it, uh, whenever there's a challenge, there are a range of potential solutions and with proper foresight, you can choose a solution uh, that is both simpler and more productive. Okay. So you can, uh, there are you also have the option of more complex and more productive you have the option of more complex, more inefficient. You can be sim- simpler and you can be more inefficient. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They can go so all these different directions. You can sir. go all, the,
1: all kinds of directions. So whenever we arrive, when we're looking for solutions to a problem, we look for simpler and more productive at the same time. Okay. And whether that's with our CSA delivery uh, or whether that's some uh, a farm process um, in the field. And that's been a very... Important box to check for us. Does this make our work easier to do? Is it lower costs? In other words, is it simpler to do? And second to all, does it act, does it increase production or is it going to slow down production or decrease it?
0: And I would imagine it's mostly the records that you're keeping that allow you to keep track of this and come to conclusions whether or not this is moving in the direction you want, right? Tell me about the record-keeping and probably a lot of the financial record-keeping that gives you insights into these uh, different trials and, and experiments.
1: Well, I'm a bit um, unorthodox here, and um, I rely on Tichi Ono at Toyota, who famously said, costs do not exist to be calculated. Costs exist to be eliminated. <laughs> and so to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time calculating our costs. Don't spend time with spreadsheets. I don't use a single spreadsheet for our farming. Um, but we do have what we call head metrics, simple parameters that we've set on our farm to make sure that we're heading in the right direction, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'd mentioned one of them, which is $3 a square foot. And as we harvest, you can we can keep track of this metric. You know, as we cut spinach or arugula or kale or whatever, we can track, okay, what's the dollar value square foot that we're coming in at here. And so that's a simple one to keep. Another one, like I mentioned, uh, was our accounts ordering, you know, $200 a week. Um, another one is that before our, our delivery van leaves our farm, does it have $500 worth of produce on it? Um, and then one that Rachel had come up with, uh, was per 14 gallon tote. Uh, is there at least $50 of produce in it mm-hmm. that we were harvesting? And so this is uh, a weight metric, I suppose, because she was the one working at farmer's markets and lifting totes that had two watermelons in them, maybe $6 <laughs> worth in that tote, and versus totes that had microgreens, pea shoots or something the $120 worth in those. So she kept telling me, bring me those light eight, high dollar value totes. Yeah, you can leave man. behind those heavy, heavyweight totes with low dollar value amounts in them.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And it also, I'm sure, saves you a ton of time in the back end on the administration when it goes into, you know, micro analyzing numbers. And, you know, this is something that we're constantly going back and forth on on the climate farmers community, the, the community that I help to manage with farmers who are in transition to regenerative agriculture is how do we measure and keep track of progress in ways that are relevant to the unique goals that each of us have? And everybody's unique goals are going to you know, cause them to change priorities, make different metrics or measurements more or less relevant based on where they're trying to get to, what they're trying to obtain and their lifestyle as well as the profit metrics of their business. Was this a conversation that you also had with your partner about, okay, what are we really going to do this for? What is our quality of life that this is going to enable? I know you mentioned finding a balance when you had children. And maybe spending less time actually working and enjoying time with them or time in the community. What did this look like when you were working it out?
1: Well, the Tao Te Ching says that the rewards of good work is the reward of good work is productivity. And it's often thought that on small-scale organic, sustainable farms, uh that we have to sacrifice productivity and efficiency. Um, uh, that nature itself is inefficient compared to large-scale corporate farming models. Hmm. And what what I've consistently seen is that when we model our farming on nature, we increase efficiency. When we localize our farm, we actually have concrete advantages uh, over competitors from California and faraway places. I would challenge any California lettuce grower, on a one-to-one competition, could we produce a hundred pounds of let to produce a hundred pounds of lettuce with lower cost than we can here? Mm-hmm. Certainly, they could seed and transplant with their large-scale equipment probably faster than we can here. But when you calculate uh, your refrigeration, your delivery costs, um, and, uh, and your um, the relationship with the customer is so smooth uh, that I find I would find it hard pressed to. I'd, it'd be interesting to see how those numbers would come out. Um, but to get to answer your uh, question, the uh, the goal is to have time with our kids and to not be overworked, working 60, 70 hours a week. And we really wanted to keep it under 35 hours a week, which we've been uh, able to do. And the model is more of a part time farming um, model, uh, to be honest, because now Rachel spends uh, very little time, relatively on the farm compared to what she used to. And I do too. And we do have other pursuits that we're able to enjoy. Primarily right now it's fishing, uh, with our kids. Uh, we've got a little cabin on a river and we spend, enjoy spending time there. Um, and we want to get away from the farm on weekends and even three, four day weekends, even during the busy growing season. And we've been able to do more of more of that.
0: That's remarkable. I know that's something that so many people are shooting for, and it seems unobtainable from wherever they may be at the moment. And it's good to know that there are some systematic approaches where you can analyze the way that your business is going, your personal priorities, and get them to better align within a business that facilitates your lifestyle. And of course, this is going to look different for everyone, and it's going to look different based on the business models, the enterprises that they have, and the resources that they have to make their transition. But Simple questions and auditing a lot of our assumptions about how we have to do things, I think, is what opens up possibilities for maybe bucking the trend like you did initially and in, in not trying to grow so large and even going in the opposite direction in a way that facilitated the lifestyle that you wanted. Mm-hmm. Now, I also would like to go into some of the nitty gritty, the, the, the details, the logistics. You write in the book about infrastructure and how, like you were talking about in the beginning, striving for enough and not going beyond that, making sure that there's sort of an, a minimum effective dose when it comes to building an infrastructure and that less is better. How has that looked like for your farm and the infrastructure that is essential for how you do things on that small space?
1: Sure, so when we purchased our land, it was a blank slate. There wasn't a single building uh, single building on it um, backward. We're growing our food. And so we really had the opportunity we moved primarily for our, our kids, to, have, to be closer to resources for our two, our two kids. And Rachel has sisters here, um, uh, and t- one of them whom lives on our property here and has a daughter, and so the kids have cousins, play with them, walking distance to doctors, offices and that sort of thing. However, the move was also a chance to, to build a, tr- a, a lean farm. the ground up which is something that uh, i'd always wanted to do and what we essentially did was we had uh when we counted and we had 11 outbuildings, 11 buildings at our previous farm these are structures with roofs on them that we had to weed around had to paint or maintain somehow and what we decided to do at our new farm was compress and so we built just one uh one building called a barn house and it includes our propagation house our processing room our spray station um we stored, uh equipment and seeds in here and we live in a portion of it too <laughs> and so there are just a lot of functions compressed into into one building um and then the same with our greenhouses instead of having several we built just one large greenhouse uh after two seasons that turned out to be not quite enough we wanted a, a smaller one that we could uh, heat, uh, more affordably in the winter. So we have one large greenhouse and one small tunnel, um, that we use to heat for extra early tomatoes and in those winter vegetables.
0: And you said you've also got things down now to only seven essential tools. What are those tools and what is it that they enable you to do so effectively?
1: So we used, and I should have said throughout the book, we use as a template EF Schumacher's uh, ideas and I, in small is beautiful which is uh, 50 years old this year. And every idea in that book is as or more relevant today than when it was written. Mm. I highly recommend uh, your listeners to pick up a copy and uh, apply those concepts. With tools, you want to select, according to Schumacher, tools with a human face, technology with a human face. And what this means is that uh, tools should be simple to, to use um, and uh, but it's technology, so it should increase your productivity. So it's, it's I'm going back to that concept. You want a simpler approach that increases productivity at the same time. And so these are uh, readily available tools. They're low cost tools, but they get a lot of work accomplished. And when it comes to you've you're probably familiar with the 5s organizing method within Lean, but this is a system for keeping your tools organized. But it's also a system for choosing your tools. And the first Step in 5S is sort or Siri in Japanese. And what Siri means, uh, or the the metric you use for sorting is touch. How often did you touch the tool in the previous growing season? How often did it get used? And so it's really an objective metric. You can count how many times you're touching a tool in a week. So we certainly had more than seven tools (laughs) at our previous farm. Uh, and But these seven, we were touching the most Mm -hmm. and we decided to keep. And... Uh, the the first that we touch perhaps the most is a 30-inch bed preparation rake. It's sometimes called an Austrian bed rake. It's an aluminum tool. Uh, and the tines run almost collinearly to the surface. So it's meant to really just skim that surface to pull twigs and rocks and chunks of compost from that top one inch so that you have good seed purchase. You've got a nice seed bed without uh, debris debris in it. And we use that tool after we pull off the tarps, uh, to rake away the melted crop that's underneath. Um, the a, a second would be uh, fixed blade sweeps on a wheel hoe. And instead of oscillating sweeps or, uh, parts that move, these are fixed. So there's a, there's a direct power transfer from your upper body muscles. To the blade of the wheel hoe. Haas tools in the U.S. would sell these sweeps, but they're an L-shaped piece of steel, essentially. So a very simple tool that can take out very small weeds uh, if you keep it sharp. We we do, and we can skim the surface, take out small weeds, but it's very strong. And you can really cut underneath those dandelions and go deep with it, too, if you need to. Um, There's an electric uh, wheel hoe now in the U.S. that's available that we're using, uh, Tillmore is the company that makes that tool, and it's called the EOX, E-O-X. And, but we, we use it in the same fashion. We put those uh, fixed blade sweeps from Haas tools on the EOX. And those are our two primary fuel prep tools. Uh, if we need to loosen ground that's a bit stiff, like let's say it's been raining really hard, and the, the ground's a bit stiffer, we want to plant carrots, and we want, we want the ground to be extra loose, uh, we no no longer use uh, the broad forks, uh, unless we really have tough ground that people have been walking on, but that doesn't happen very often. Uh, we typically would use these fixed blade sweeps and go deep with them. You can go five or six inches deep. And what it does, in effect, you take a piece of steel four inches or five inches underneath the soil surface, and it gently lifts everything. And allows oxygen to penetrate and allows rain to get Uh, into the soil down to the microbes and it's a beautiful way a gentle way to work the land without inverting the soil airs and our plants love it the soil stays intact that compost stays intact and nature does most of the work
0: brilliant yeah i can see how that kind of broadly takes care of all of the essential tasks that you have now whittled your work down into and part of getting down to just a few effective tools comes from that judicial, I guess, cutting out of anything that is unnecessary, that constant auditing of unnecessary movements or efforts that don't result in that productivity or that profitability that you were seeking. I am actually just really curious as to, you know, you mentioned too at the beginning of when we were speaking that nothing's ever perfect, there's always some things that you're still trying to improve upon. Given that you've already gone so far in this process, you've got things down very small and efficient at this point uh, with minimal extra work. What are you still trying to improve? What are you trying to optimize for at this late stage of of optimization?
1: Um, One thing I'm personally trying to improve, and I'm using um, some meditation practice to do this, is to increase the equanimity uh, in myself as I work. And with our crew, too. And um, uh, so we um, try are trying to better implement, and, and lean speak would be hijunka, hijunko would be load leveling. This idea that instead of compressing all your work into Friday morning, doing all your harvest in one busy morning it's just a hectic time and you've got a lot going on, to really spread out the stress of a farm. Um, I'm the, I'm, as I said earlier, I'm the anxious one in our uh, household here and to really, uh, notice when, uh, I'm stressed at work and really ask, uh, and lean again, again, sorry to keep borrowing on lean speak, but they use the five whys process, ask why five times, well, why was this a stressful afternoon? Um, or why did that order get messed up to that chef? And if you ask why five times, you typically get at the root of a problem, yeah. And so to get at the root of these problems and, and to to work on uh, better equanimity, the Tao Te Ching says, live close to the ground and keep your thoughts simple. And so that really lines up nicely with our production approach um, to, to produce our food closely in line with nature's systems and to keep our thinking, keep our production as simple as we can.
0: How does that look like for you on the ground? So is it a matter of trying to spread out tasks more evenly throughout the week? Is it trying to mm-hmm. decouple them from certain stressors or conditions that might be out of your hands? What, what does this look like for you?
1: So, I, and I, I want to stress that this would be different for every farmer. Mm. <laughs> um, and, but so for me, uh stress point was um, all that relating to chefs. Uh, getting the fresh list, well, concretely putting out, getting the fresh list put out, fresh list being the list of what we have available on the farm and getting that to our chefs, you know, three or four times a week, uh, taking orders from them, keeping that all managed. Uh, and the same with our small CSA that we have, uh, collecting those customers, communicating with those customers. Uh, a lot of customer touches that were needing to happen at the same time that I needed to get this spinach put in on time, you know what I'm saying? And so what we did was we made a very selective uh, hire and we, ha- we hired a uh, uh, an assistant farm manager who works very part-time. Uh, Doesn't She does an excellent job at this, at her work. And she works for us mostly from home. <laughs> she raises two kids, uh, homeschooling. And uh, for our CSA, for instance, I said, Hey, Nicole, what would it look like if we told you the number of customers we wanted and the season and you did everything else <laughs> and, uh, it, it worked. And she took that on as a challenge and lean, they, they call it, you want to push responsibility down the ladder. Mm. So really give important tasks to, to even new workers, um, keep their, keep their cubs full, so to speak, and uh, not overflowing, but full. And so, with that CSA she rounds up the customers she sends out all the emails uh uh collects all their, the money even uh gives it to us and then uh she shows up at the farm uh on the de- on CSA delivery morning and delivers the food and so what all i have to do is produce the amounts of types of food um, that we need to put in our CSA baskets
0: And that's, again, another fantastic and innovative way of including people in your community, tailoring a product to their desires, and collaborating with someone in an effective way. I think, you know, maybe this might not apply to most of the people who are listening, but it maybe gets the wheels turning into how they might be able to creatively solve some of their wicked problems that may have been persisting for a while. Now, I know that you really have most of your experience in growing vegetables. And those are most of the people that you consult and work with as well. Do you have any advice for people with other types of farm enterprises about how the lean method and maybe even inspiring them to look how they could grow smaller even uh, with different types of farm enterprises as well?
1: Well, I uh, certainly think the Pareto principle is universal. That would apply. And so in your business, a simple activity you can do is say, how could we do less but better next season? And, um, and you ask yourself, well, what were the vital crops and what were the most vital customers? What were the 20% cream off the top? And what if you would cut out 80%, the 80% mm-hmm. or the tri the trivial, which the language Pareto would use. And so really putting on that set of eyeglasses and seeing your business in that through that lens can be a very powerful technique. Um, more concretely, uh, going directly back to Toyota and lean, the lean system really amounts to innovation businesses say there are only two activities that are happening on your farm you're either adding value for your customer and ideally you've talked to the customer and they're the ones who define you know define that value what they yeah. want when they want and how much so you're you're either increasing value to your product or you're contributing a form of muda or waste we have just one word for waste in the english language the japanese have seven different waste concepts. And in both my books, I go over them. That's so important to understand the seven types of waste, how they've, uh, how they manifest in your workplace, no matter if you're raising animals, uh, milk producing uh, grains or vegetables.
0: Yeah. Okay. So for somebody completely new who is starting this, Uh let's say with a market garden. I'm maybe another year or two away from looking at a market garden as a possible enterprise, but I am in the middle of starting a tree nursery. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give them to start out when you're looking at all of the different options of tools and infrastructure that you could invest in in the beginning, all of the things that you could produce and who you could sell it to? How do you wade through all of those options and just figure out what is going to work for you and how to do it effectively?
1: The last chapter of my book, and I'm just going to plug the Lean Micro Farm here. Please do. It is, it's written for that new farmer. And, and how do you wade through all those choices and start out, especially with market growing? I, I, uh, the last chapter includes a specific how to earn $20,000 from your backyard. So an easy way to begin, with even with a 5,000-square-foot backyard, I've got a concrete seating plan, a garden layout plan, Uh, And a plan for finding those first customers in the last chapter of the book. So check that out. Um, It's a great way to get your business going. Um, A a key piece is what I call the four-two farming method. Four-two. This means start with four crops, two customers, so that you're relatively focused. I don't recommend a CSA that first season. Uh, So the two customers could include a restaurant and a grocery account, or maybe um, a farmers market uh, and a restaurant and a chef, uh, and then the four crops would be based on that conversation you have with the customers. Um, but typically, tomatoes and greens, uh, kales, uh, spinach and lettuce are easy sells and with you know widespread market popularity and with high margins for growers too. Mm-hmm. And so that last chapter lays out very simple, uh, high margin methods for producing those crops and spells out in more specificity that 4-2 method.
0: Brilliant. And having a template like that can make such a difference in getting over the overwhelm of those options, like I mentioned. And I think it's one of the biggest resources in this book beyond all the inspiration for how this has actually worked out in your own story as well. Ben, I really appreciate you taking time here. Before you go, can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you and find out more about your books and your resources?
1: Uh, There are lots of ways to engage with these ideas. Uh, go to claybottomfarm.com, and there are different ways to purchase the books. Uh, I offer an online master class for those wanting to start up micro farms. And those are more than 100 video lessons you can work through at your own pace. And then we have uh, once a year a lean farm startup workshop on our farm. People come uh, all over the world, actually, for a two-day intensive on how to start up a micro farm.
0: Fantastic. That is a really great place to send people. I'll make sure to include the links for that in the show notes for this episode. And I really look forward to being in touch again in the future. Maybe we can even go deeper into the lean farm method, which is what got me interested in your work in the first place on a follow-up episode.
1: I'd love to. Thanks.
0: Thanks once again to Ben. I'll link to his website for his farm and his three books on the show notes on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners, exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account at regen underscore skills is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.